don't know, maybe 10 years ago, it was my grandpa who was a church planter. He was uh, talking about wisdom, and we were talking about wisdom, and he mentioned, yeah, you know, uh, the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1-7, is the beginning of wisdom. And I remember even then, I was like, what does that really mean, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning point, the beginning point of wisdom? And that's a really important concept. And I hope that as we work through the wisdom book of the Song of Songs, that you would understand better what it means that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I want to just kind of walk you through Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 11. The word fear doesn't occur until verse 10. That's where we get, who among you fears the Lord. We have that phrase right here. And this is who you want to be. You want to be the person that fears the Lord. What does that look like? It actually can be a pretty, um, well, difficult, more challenging than you might think. And uh, this is what it means, and this is what true wisdom is, and this is how wisdom is, uh, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So to begin this morning, I want to just read through Isaiah 50. We're going to start at verse 4. And we're going to read through verses 4 to the end of the chapter. And then I want to just think through uh, this concept of the fear of the Lord, and that'll provide my introduction. That's what's nice about the chapel morning hour. Sorry, Pat. Is that uh, I can actually give you almost two sermons because I get more time. But this is going to be a little mini. It's an introduction. It's not a sermon. It might feel like a sermon, but it's an introduction. And, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll go to our text. But let's read God's Word. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us wisdom and teaching us what wisdom is through Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Job, and here even Isaiah, and through the life of this servant. And Lord, as we look at wisdom and as we study through the fear of the Lord just as an introduction here to the Song of Songs. I pray that we would fear you. Lord, if we fear you, we have nothing to be ashamed of. And if we fear you, you will give us the strength. You will help us to go through whatever trial, 
we may encounter. In Jesus' name, amen. In Isaiah chapter 50, we have actually one of the servant songs. You saw the word servant later on in the passage, and even as I read through that text, some of it may have resonated, resonated with some of the songs that we often sing, some of the theology that we often celebrate, the forgiveness that we have through our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. He is the servant, and the New King James translation rightly capitalizes his servant down here in Isaiah 50 verse 10. Who is the I? Who is the you here in the beginning of the chapter? It's beginning in verse uh, 4. The Lord God has given me. Notice that the New King James capitalizes the me because the me is the servant. The me is the Messiah. We have this description of the servant, and this line goes all the way to here. We have the my ear. We have the tongue. We have the ear. And the servant receives something. What does he receive? He receives information. He knows what he is supposed to do. He has wisdom. The servant awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear. This is the center of this section. I would love to walk you through a Bible study of this passage. It is a beautiful passage with huge application to the Christian life. It truly teaches us a summary of the fear of the Lord and how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because the servant is asked to do something that is ridiculous. It is insane. It is foolish. Sometimes God asks us to do things that everybody tells you is foolish. And some of the material that we're going to go over today in the Song of Songs is going to probably sound a little bit foolish. It will not make any sense to you because the world completely has distorted this idea of purity, of intimacy, and as a result... We have to recover, reclaim what biblical intimacy really is. And, then, and, and so as we work through this idea of the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord has to be the beginning of wisdom. The Messiah knows what he has to do. And then what does it say in verse 5? I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Have you ever thought about the Garden of Gethsemane? When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's like, hey, let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. What do you, do you think? He knew what was going to happen. He knew who was coming. What would wisdom do? What is wisdom? Wisdom is you're walking down a road and you're like, oh, I need to get a street over. And you come up to an alley and you're like, whoa, that alley? Guess what? It doesn't look too good. <laughs> I think I'm going to pick a different path. You know, Jesus. Why don't you, you know, I think we should go to a different garden tonight. Maybe not the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's pick, you know, isn't this one here really, really nice? That's what wisdom does. Wisdom is prudence. Prudence sees danger up ahead and it says, hey, you know what? Let's go a different way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if God says, I have a valley that you have to walk through, the fear of the Lord tells you to walk through that valley. And if you say, I don't like the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't want to go through that valley, I see a better way. What are you doing? 
Do you see that? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's fascinating reading through the gospel accounts of the, of the crucifixion of our Savior. He had so many times that he could have gotten out of that. <laughs> Everybody knew he was innocent. Even the guy that was really in charge, Pilate knew he was innocent. He could have gotten out of it. But what would that have been? That would have been rebellion. Because God said, this is the valley that you need to walk through. Now, God sometimes puts us through hard times, and I don't know what kind of situation you're going through right now, and it might have nothing to do with the Song of Songs, and you're like, man, I'm going through a valley, and this is a really, really hard time, and God's word says, do, boom, 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 okay? And, and you're like, boy, I'm just, man, do, is that really the answer? Isn't there some other way? And you're like, man, I've got to find some other way. Well, that's why this is so important, you know? When God says, hey, guess what? This is the path, you walk. And you take one step at a time, and you put one foot in front of the other, and you walk down that path. This was Jesus' path. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Think about that statement. They're beating him and punishing him. And he just stands there and he just takes it. And they beat him and they pull at his beard and they spit in his face and he just stands there and he just takes it. Shame is a major theme here in this section. The word recurs a few different, occur, uh, few different times. He did not I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, which is also a key word through this section. We see the word help on a few different occurrences, which is majorly important for the trial that the Lord might bring you through. Shame and help, because what does the world do to assuage us from the path that God has laid before us? They embarrass us. They shame us. They say, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. Why would you ever do that? Everybody knows that this is the right path. You have a choice when placed in a position where you have to go on one path or another. You can choose either the shame of this world or the shame before Almighty God. Do you see how this text develops? Do you see what it says? I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Go ahead, embarrass me, humiliate me. I don't care because before him... I will not be ashamed. This is the fear of the Lord. You fear God, you don't fear man. You fear God, you don't fear what the world has to say. You fear God, you don't fear the coworker or the friend or the neighbor or whoever it might be. You don't fear any of them because you do not want to be ashamed before him. And then you go through that trial, and it's like, boy, but what is this trial? Can I really endure it? And what does this text state? You know, the Lord is there. He is the one that will help me. He is the one that justifies. And then look at this statement. Do you see the comparison between the fear of God and the fear of man? Who will contend with me? Bring it. 
I don't care who you are because God is on my side. Embarrass me, beat me, humiliate me. It means nothing because the God of the universe will be the one that you're really going to be held accountable before. Can you imagine the crucifixion, the trials of Jesus as Jesus stands before these judges and they're pronouncing judgment? You're dead. You can condemn me all you want. I don't care. Because who will not condemn me? The God of the universe will not condemn me. This text beautifully illustrates the comparison between the fear of God and the fear of man. And as we work through the Song of Songs in the biblical sexual ethic, so often the pressures from this world, they use these same topics, uh, these same methods. And that's why I wanted to come here. But these men, these men, what are they? Well, you know what? Man, think of moths. You know, last night we went for a boat ride and we're co- coasting around the lake. And for, I don't know how. I mean, there's like no bugs around. But all of a sudden, our boat was like engulfed in these little bugs. They're so annoying. And so finally, Jay just hit the gas and we kind of left them in the dust. And, you know, and we enjoyed our boat ride a little bit more. Think of a moth. It's this insignificant little bug. And it eats a garment. That person that you're scared of that you fear, who is that person? What will consume and destroy that person? A bug, a worm. They're nothing. And the servant states, surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Nobody, I don't care. You can condemn me, condemn me to death. You will grow old like a garment, the moth will eat you up. Verse 10 Now the exhortation to the hearer, to the listener. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? The fear of the Lord is connected to the obedience of the commandments of God. And sometimes when God has us walk through a valley, it's a very dark valley. In fact, it makes no sense. It's completely absurd. It's dark. The prophet flips the metaphor. Usually when you have wisdom, you have light in your eyes. Prudence says, oh, look, that, val- that alley, that looks really dark. That looks really scary and dangerous. I'm going to go on a different path. That's prudence. And by the way, you should have prudence. Don't go down the dark alley, all right? Uh, there's a lot of Proverbs that talk about that. But when you are walking on a path that God has ordained for you to walk on, and you're like, I don't know how this is going to end. This is darkness all around me. This is impossible. How can this, possi- how can this possibly work out? What do you have to do? What does the text say? You have to trust. And you walk in darkness. One step at a time. And as you tread that path, the God who, who created the universe, who has justified you, uh, this God is the one who will help you. He will bring you through that trial. Our tendency, however, as, as worldly Christians and being surrounded by the world and then the world themselves, what do they do? They do what you see here in verse 11. What do they want to see? They want to see. They're like, I don't like, I don't, can't see. I don't know where this is going. I've got to find a light. I've got to figure it out. So what do they do? They create a fire. So then they can see. They're walking in the light. But what light is it? It's not the light of the Lord. 
It's the light of their own making. They've abandoned the fear of the Lord. They've created a wisdom, a worldly wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Jesus, the Messiah, provides a pattern for you on how to walk through the valley regardless of the situation, the circumstances. This is what God says. I'm going to obey it. I'm going to go through that valley because Jesus said to do it. He will help me. He will sustain me. He will justify me. I have nothing to be afraid of. May that be your spirit as we look at the Song of Songs and go to chapter 2, verse 8. Now we're going to read Song 2, 8. That was the introduction, remember? I know, felt a little bit like a sermon. We're going to read Song 2, 8 through 3, 5, and you're probably going to wonder as we work through this passage, how in the world does this connect to that? It'll come together. I'm going to read through this passage, and then I'm going to pray again. Song 2, 8. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. Chapter 3, verse 1. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Song of Songs and how it teaches us wisdom. Lord, we miss the Garden of Eden. We miss the days when sin did not exist and everything was right in this world. And Lord, now as we live uh, with sin, the sin of ourselves, the sin that's in the ones that we love, the ones who are closest to us, we live in a world that's been marred and destroyed and, and, and corrupted by sin, uh, I pray, Lord, that we would be Christians 
genuine Christians and walk in the fear of the Lord. And that as we love one another as husband and wife, that we would demonstrate to a lost and dying world that this is love. Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Help us to live that. Empower us. Give us the strength so that when we stand before you, we will not be ashamed. In Jesus' name, amen. Love made me do it. So this is love, okay? Love made me do it. That's what we're looking at today. Well, love made me do what? So often the world states, well, love made me do it. What did love make you do? My wife, she helped me with the title. She's amazing. <laughs> How many young people, they go too far in a relationship, they make some mistakes, and they're like, well, we're in love. Love made me do it. Okay, that's the idea. Well, what does love really make us do? Okay, and that's kind of what we're doing. We're going to create a kind of a play on words here from the Song of Songs, and let's talk about what love makes us do. Let's go back to Song 2.8, and let's begin our study. I want you to see this in the passage. Uh, you need to see this in the Bible, and I hope that as you see it in the Bible, you might live a more holy and godly life, and also that you might raise more uh, holy and godly children that, that can love their future spouses as well. So what do we have going on here? The voice of my lover. Look, he comes, and this guy's Superman. Check him out, man. He's leaping over the mountains. He's bounding over the hills. Boom, boom, boom. He's flying. And what is he rotten? Where is he going? He, she states here, my beloved is like a gazelle. She creates this metaphor, like a gazelle. In what way is he, is he like a gazelle? Well, we live in Iowa. So we don't have gazelles, but we have white-tailed deer. And like the white-tailed deer, uh, gazelles are kind of similar And that there's a specific time of year with the white-tailed deer. You've got to kind of be a little bit careful on the roads, you know, because the, 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 the deer have something on their mind. Okay? Are, are you following here? Okay? So that's the metaphor, Somebody's got something on their mind. And, and this is true. When it's that time of the, year, of the year, you know, that deer, nothing's stopping it. It's going, and it'll cross the mountains, it'll go through the valleys, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to get to where it wants to be. And that's what the metaphor is here. In fact, this marks the beginning and the conclusion to the section. So if you're um, highlighting and taking notes, we have another gazelle at the end of our section here, and we have some mountains at the end of our section as well. So there's clearly a beginning and an end to this section with the gazelle and the mountains. But we're going to move from uh, a different kind of a gazelle to a different kind of mountains as well. So in verse 9, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Then all of a sudden we have this behold. And if you're taking notes and highlighting as we're analyzing God's word and seeing what it states, we can see the repetition of that word. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. Look at this text and how it develops. First, there's this distance between the two lovers. And then there's like some, well, we have to look through a window. We have to look through a lattice because there's something in the way. There's some kind of an obstacle, something that has to be 
overcome. I'm going to continue working through the text. My beloved speaks to me. And then as we see the repetition here, he's like a gazelle. And then he speaks and he says, but this is the, the wife. She is doing the speaking, but she is telling us what he says. He begins his statement by saying, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. He concludes it with the same thing. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. And he entreats her to come out. As he speaks to her through the window, through the lattice, she can hear his voice, and he entreats her to come out. Why does he entreat her to come out? Because it is the right time. And what time is it? For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. The vines are in blossom. This is the time of spring. Okay? This is the time of love. We have this blossoming vineyard, both in verse 13 and down here in verse 15. And we're going to talk about that. That's going to be important. This is the right time. He continues to entreat her in, verses four, in verse 14, and he says, Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock. Look at the picture there, okay? Where is the dove? Okay, it's kind of hiding in the cleft of the rock. Okay, you can't get to it, but he sees it. He can hear it. What does he say? Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. We have the seeing of the face, we have the hearing, we have the hearing of the voice, and it's written in this poetic little jingle, and it's this beautiful little love poem sonnet thing that he gives her, and he entreats her to come out. Then she responds, okay? So the ESB Bible doesn't denote this, but um, actually, no, she does say this. She then Say, says this one, and this is his speech, uh, verses, verses uh, all of, uh, let's see here, all of this is what he says, but we get the information from her. Then she says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Okay, so let's talk about this. Let's think about this. What is the theological message that's being taught in this passage? What are the foxes? That's going to be a major point of our, our sermon as we study through this passage. I'm going to transition back here. We have love made me do it. We have the desire for love. We have a little gazelle there. Love desires, but it also restrains. What is driving this gazelle, this man, across the mountains? His desire for love, for intimacy with his wife. But something's in the way. There's space between the two. There's this separation. And sometimes, guess what? That's the way life is. That's the way marriage is. One of you may need to, you know... I'll be on a business trip, and you're away for a few days. Uh, one of you may just have to go take care of a sick relative and just have to be away from the other spouse. 
Well, what do you do when you're in that kind of a situation? There's desire. And as the time builds and this time progress, the desire builds. And you become kind of like a gazelle. Love desires, but it also restrains. It does that through times of separation. Also, love desires, but it also restrains, and it's through certain times. Sometimes you can be together, but there's some kind of an obstacle between your union. You can't be together, whether it's because, you know, she just had a child, or, you know, somebody's (laughs) throwing up, or, you know, there's just various situations that we go through in life where you're together, but it's not the time for love. Well, what do you do during those times? Love desires, but it restrains. It does it through separation. The mountains are apart. It does it through times. You know, there's spring, but then there's the other seasons when it's not the time for love. And it also does it through the problems. What are the the foxes? Which, by the way, the foxes isn't really the best translation. It's not really a big deal, but it's more of a jackal. Uh, Don't think of like an American fox, okay? Think of like a jackal. I'm going to do a quick word study of this word so you get an idea of what jackals do, what kind of an animal they are. In Judges 15.4, this is probably the most common use of the word that you're familiar with, and here it's also translated foxes. Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. He turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. Kind of a funny story, right? Remember that one in, uh, in the Sunday school lesson. He makes a whole mess. But what are the foxes doing in that story? They are destroying. And that's what these little boogers are. And the rest, of the, New, the rest of the Old Testament translates them as jackals. Look at Ezekiel 13.4. I'm using the ESV here. Our prophets have been like jackals among ruins. Because what do jackals do? They destroy. They make things a mess. Now we think through intimacy... What do we have? A garden, a vineyard? Well, if you have a jackal loose in a vineyard, what's it going to do to it? It's going to destroy it. It's going to make it a mess. It's going to make it a desolate wasteland. Psalm 63, 13. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. The sword comes to kill and to destroy, and it lays waste everything and allows the jackals to move in and inhabit the desolate places. Lamentations 5.18 is the clearest illustration that communicates this destruction idea. Mount Zion lies desolate and jackals prowl over it. The jackals destroy. What's going on in Song 2.15? We have a destructive little booger and it's making a mess of something that's supposed to be beautiful, uh, aromatic, uh, and sweet. What does the author, what does the woman say? Catch the foxes for us. All right, let's talk about a little bit of application, especially even to the single guys, okay? This doesn't start when you're married. It starts well, well before. It's called self-control. It's called sexual restraint. 
I have a lot of pastors here. You've done a lot of marriage counseling. You know what the damage that pornography has done upon our young men, how it creates this idea, this definition of love that's not real love. It's a jackal. And you know what it has done to marriage after marriage after marriage? It's made it a desolate wasteland. This, this is love. No. Unfortunately, as I've been the bookstore manager and I've seen these, you know, young men be pure books again and again and again, they all, how about always, most, almost all of them, they, 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 uh, they don't take a strong stand when it comes to sexual purity for men. Young men, as I'm looking out on a lot of young men, you probably struggle with pornography. You probably struggle with masturbation and self-pleasure. You need to learn self-restraint. It would be a great gift that you could give to your wife on your wedding day. When you get married, your wife is not going to be some sexual, you know, vending machine for you, all right? She is a woman, and you will need to love her as a person. And you need to purify your mind and purify your body and get victory in this area. The Song of Songs has a message for you. A difficult message. Maybe this is a sin that you've been enslaved to for an extremely long time. Pursue purity. You're like, I have tried. I have failed again and again and again. And I know I'm addressing the single men here right now, but I know I've got some fathers here too that have some single men that want to raise them in purity. Okay? Yes, I know. I'm with you on that. All right? I'm there. Uh, and it's just beginning for me. Okay? Uh, we want this for our men. First of all, you need to call sin, sin. And this is the, one of the problems that I've seen with this issue is that people don't call it sin. It is sin. God desires purity from you, young man. And as the pressure builds and desire increases with time, God designed your body to have a release. And this is the way that it's supposed to be. In Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 11, God talks about this release. When the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. If there is a, any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. But it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water, and when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. As God's army went out to battle, it was supposed to be a holy army. And this included sexual purity. This is something that David ran into with a problem with Uriah, a righteous man, who refused to go to his wife, but went back out to the battlefield to fight and to die for righteousness' sake. This is God's design. This is the way that he made things. And this is something that you can have victory in. I teach at a Bible college. I talk to young men. This is a regular topic, a regular discussion. I'm going to just recommend a resource to you. Finally Free is a book that I would recommend. The author is Heath Lambert. I would recommend that a godly man lead you through a Bible study, and not just you, but also maybe another man or two. It'd be even better if it was a pastor or somebody who has authority over you. 
that can give you a little bit more of a punch when you need it. Because that's what we need. Because this is a really hard battle. And you need to have victory. Okay, so I am just kind of applying this text in one specific direction. But as I have a lot of husbands that are out there, you're probably thinking too, whoa, this is something that I still struggle with. I know. I've read literature. I've seen the polls. I've talked to the pastors. One pastor I was talking to did a survey of the men in his congregation. And he said it was like 70% still masturbate on a regular basis. And he was shocked I wasn't. It's a regular issue with our married men. And this should not be. This is a fox. It's a jackal. And it's destroying the intimacy that God designed for you to enjoy with your wife. Intimacy is intimacy. Guess what that requires? Another person, your wife. This is a jackal that needs to be seized. The word here is a jackal, and also look at the qualification in the second line. It's broader. I'm applying it in specific areas that I hear that people never talk about. They need, we need to talk about this, and we need to have victory in this area. But it's also just the little things, these little foxes. This could be something as insignificant as, you know, a picture on the wall that one of you likes and the other one doesn't, or a fight that you had over this or that. It could be a myriad of little things. But when there's some kind of a strife between you and your spouse, okay, what's not happening that night? If there's no peace between you and your spouse, then there's no intimacy. And if there is intimacy, it's not sheet music, okay? It's a cacophony. And it's a problem. We need to seize the foxes. I do believe that the woman is the one that is speaking here. I will tell you that the verb, the verb right here to seize the foxes is a a masculine plural verb. It's a plural. It's like uh, an exhortation to both of the couples. Uh, Ladies, you can have a part in the seizing of the foxes, you know, You're both sinners, and and you're both going to have to work together to resolve the situations in the marriage so then you can enjoy intimacy the way that God designed it. And if you let a little fox run around and destroy that intimacy, then guess what happens? You get a spoiled vineyard. And then look at this final description of the vineyard. Our vineyards are in blossom. When you think of a blossom, what do you think of? Okay, something that smells really good, but also something that's very fragile. And love is fragile. It can be easily destroyed. And the Song of Songs teaches us We have little foxes that run around and they're destroying things in our marriages and they're destroying the intimacy that God designed. And as I look around at an audience of marriages, and these marriages probably have some foxes. They need to be seized. You may not even know about a fox. You need to talk, communicate with your husband, communicate with your wife. 
talk about intimacy. I really just don't like this. I love you, but I really just don't like that. Or whatever the issue might be. I think we had some sermon last night about for, for, forgive, forgiveness. And then we need to forgive one another. We need to be at peace. Do you know what Solomon means? The name, Solomon. What does the word Solomon mean? Shalom, peace. This is what the song is doing. It's driving towards peace. Do you remember Shulamite? Okay, in Song of Songs chapter 6. You know, you've probably heard of her. We're not looking at that section. I can't talk about everything in the song. Isn't that kind of interesting? Solomon. By the way, Solomon's name in Hebrew is Shlomo. It's kind of a cool name, isn't it? Shlomo. I always liked it. Shlomo. I had one Hebrew student. He picked the name Shlomo. I like that. What's that? Who's that person? It's like Solomon. You know, it kind of feels ostentatious if you're going to be name yourself Solomon. <laughs> he went with it anyway because he liked the name. Shlomo. That person is actually Lance Augsburger. So if you're at Maranatha Baptist Church, call him Shlomo, okay? Have fun with that. He's probably forgotten. It was a long time ago. Shlomo Shulamit. Shlomo Shulamit. Hear it? Guess what you have there? You have a Mr. Peace, Solomon. And what is he looking for? Mrs. Peace. I want to talk to you about this vineyard a little bit more. Okay, let's go back to song one. I told you that we were going to skip this section and then come back to it. I want to go back to verses 12 through 14. When we think of the vineyards, I've already told you um, from back in song one, five, and six, and of course, I'm sure you remember everything that I say, but back in verses five and six, we had uh, the woman and she's tending vineyards, so her own vineyard, she's not been able to maintain. She hasn't been able to keep it. Well, here in song one, 12 through 14, we have the vineyard. It shows up again. The vineyards of Engedi. And I want to just kind of explain to you further what these vineyards are. Look at the parallelism between verses 13 and 14. My beloved is to me. Look at verse 13. My beloved is to me. A sachet of myrrh. A cluster of henna blossoms. That lies between my breasts. And the vineyards of Engedi. Do you see the correspondence? What are the vineyards? The vineyards are the breasts. What are the breasts? They are a synecdoche. It's a big fancy word, but it's a part for a whole. A part for the whole for the intimacy and the sexual delight that the wife offers. So throughout the Song of Songs, when you see the vineyards, what should you be thinking of? You should be thinking of the sexual delights that the wife offers to the husband. So when the wife says back in verse 6, do not gaze at me because I am dark. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. She's speaking about the sexual appeal from the physical component aspect of her body. But there's this other word I want you to see. Look at this word keeper and kept. This word only occurs four times in the Song of Songs. These are the first two uses of the keeper, of the kept. The last time that the Song of Songs uses the word keeper or kept comes at the end of the book in Song of Songs chapter 8. 
In Song of Songs chapter 8, we have a different kind of a keeper. In Song of Songs chapter 8, verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver pieces. My own vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand. And the keepers of the fruit, 200. Did Solomon keep? And the word for keep, it's like to guard, to maintain, to, to hu- husband. Did Solomon husband his vineyard? No. He had a thousand women. He couldn't. It was impossible. What does the male lover of the Song of Songs do? He seizes the foxes. Do we see that? He seizes the foxes. And the exhortation from the Song of Songs is clear for men. What do you need to do? You need to seize the foxes. You need to talk to your wife and say, you know what? I've sinned. Will you forgive me? And be specific, okay? I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me? You need to emphasize, you need to champion self-restraint and your wife needs to be your only source of sexual, sexual intimacy. You need to champion selfless, sacrificial love in your marriage bed and in your home where you be that spiritual leader to your wife, to your children. You need to be the man with a name. And when a fox, a little one, starts to sneak in, you need to catch it. You need to grab it. And you need to take care of it. In the Song of Songs, the lovers, they resolve the issue. They take care of the foxes. In verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. We have union. See that? It's not my, think about the end of the song, okay? Compare verse 16. Okay, my beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Remember the woman's reply to Solomon back in, the, in verse 12? My vineyard, my very own, is before me. See that? It's no, my beloved is mine and I am his, okay? It's mine is mine. I don't want anything to do with you, okay? This, the lovers resolve in chapter two, my beloved is mine and I am his. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn my lover and be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains, on the divided mountains. A clear metaphor for her breasts That would be the synecdoche for sexual intimacy. So what do we need to do? We need to seize foxes. That's what we need to do. What's going to make us do that? Love. (laughs) Love made me do it. And I don't know what's going on in your home, in your life, uh, with your spouse. Um, Young person, I don't know the the challenges that you need to, do, to go through to have victory. So young men, 
the challenges that you need to go through to have victory in this area. You may have to take some radical measures. You may need to take that phone that you have and you may need to grab a hammer and just smash it, okay? Just get rid of it, all right? You can get a dummy phone. So then you have nothing on it, but it's a phone and people can stay in touch with you. Some actions that you may need to take, you need to take maybe serious action. Um, I was talking to one young man and uh, we were talking about something and he needed to, like, oh, we should just Google that. And he's like, yeah, can you do that? He didn't have Google on his phone. Amen. Have victory. Pursue it. Do the hard things. Sometimes there's a valley that we need to walk through and it looks impossible. Isaiah 50, who can help you to have success? The Lord. Draw close to him. Think through the message yesterday I was talking about, about cultivating the infections. Keep yourself busy. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. Get into the word. Have some godly friends that are going to study the Bible with you, so on and so forth. Okay, do it. Do it. Take the step that you need to take to have victory in this area. So that, this passage applies in a lot of different ways. Look at your life. What do you need to do? And then take that step. Okay, Song of Songs chapter three. We're not done. You're like, this sounds like the end of the sermon. It's like almost time to be done. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> I used to think that was the end of this section. <clears throat> and I studied it and looked at some more. I studied it and looked at some more. I'm like, I don't think it is. And so I'm going to give you the next section too. But before we do that, we need to develop a little bit of theology of uh, femininity and a little bit of theology from the book of Proverbs. And so I'm going to go through a bunch of stuff here just in the PowerPoint, and I hope that you can follow along. Um, oh, wait, actually, no, 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 sorry. That was the way I was going to teach this, and then I changed my mind. I am sorry. We're going to go to the song, okay? First, I want you to see this in this passage. Let's study song three, one through four. I want, I want you to see this, thing, this development in this passage, then I'll go through all of that material. Okay, so in the song, on my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. Notice what's repeated in this section in verses one through four. I sought him, but I did not find him. Verse two, I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely as I passed them by when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Okay, we just read through those verses. I want you to do some work here. I want you to read through it yourself and I want you to note what is being repeated. When you see something that's being repeated, I want you just to shout it out. Let's study this a little bit together. Okay, I heard seeking. Found him not. We have this finding. Louder? 
my soul loves. Good. Do you see the setting here? On my bed by night. Oops. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. Isn't that interesting? Wow. At night, I sought him, but he's not there. It's like, oh, I'm in bed. He's like, he's not here. Look at the assertion of the will in verse 2. I will rise now and go out about the city. In the streets and in the squares. Hmm. What time of day is this? At night. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen. Who are these guys? Okay, these guys occur two times in the song. We see them here and in song five. I think it's like verse eight or something like that. If I'm off, that's fine. You can just fix it. Seven, eight, somewhere in there, okay? And here, the watchmen, they find her. Who are these people? You know, this is where understanding characters in the Old Testament can be really helpful. These are types. And a type character, it functions in just one specific way. And a watchman protects the city, And also, it kind of functions as the police force. And they say, hey, guess what? You're doing something right or you're doing something wrong. And what do the watchmen do here? Nothing. (laughs) They find her. And they're like the ones that determine, is this something that somebody's doing right? Or is this a different kind of a girl? Okay? You following? And then what do they do? They just pass her by because she's doing what's right. If they met a different kind of a girl, it may have been a different kind of a scenario, all right? So they found her as she went about the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? And then she passes them by. When I found him whom my soul loves. And look at this terminology. I held him and would not let him go. That sounds kind of aggressive. Until I had brought him into my mother's house. That's a little weird, and into the chamber of her who conceived me. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Now let's go through the presentation. I want to show the contrast between these two women. There's these two ladies. The one is the Song of Songs wife, and the other one is Dame Folly. The pictures that you see there, the one is Lady Wisdom, and she's instructing the fool, saying this is the way that you need to go. And he's snoozing, so it's not a very, you know, it'd be better if it was maybe a wise man, but I was struggling to find a picture of Lady Wisdom, and whatever, it's the one I came up with. The other one, well, what's the other one? Anybody? Samson. I heard a couple of people mutter it, okay? It's an artistic rendition of Samson with Delilah, and the lion head at his feet and his long hair and so on and so forth. We have two different women, the Song of Songs wife and Dame Folly. Delilah is the, um, the, the, the ultimate Dame Folly. In fact, Delilah contrasts with Ruth, who is the ultimate 
Lady Wisdom. She is the virtuous wife. And they both lived around the same time period. Fun little study. You can go after that on your own. Have fun. Let's compare these two ladies. What do we have? The lips drip with honey. Proverbs 5, verse 3, for the lips of a strange woman drip honey. In Song of Songs, chapter 4 and verse 11, your lips drip sweetness like the honeycomb, my bride. Mm. Second, we have this intoxicating scent. In Proverbs 7, 17, I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. In Song of Songs 4, 13 through 14, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits. Fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes. There's the same words. Cinnamon, aloes, myrrh. Mm. They have the same scent and offer the young man the same scent. They provide the same in- invitation. In Proverbs 7:18, come, let us drink deeply of lovemaking until morning. In Song 7, 11 through 12, the same word is used where Lady Wisdom, the virtuous wife, the Song of Songs lover, entreats her husband, her lover, come, my lover, let us go out to the field. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early in the vineyards. See the idea of the morning? Let us see if the vine has budded, the grape blossoms opened, the pomegranates bloomed. There I will give you my love. So they offer the same invitation. They encourage the young man and woo him because of the delight in which they can offer the young man. Proverbs 9.17, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. In Song 7.13, the mandrakes give off a scent. And over our doors are all kinds of delicious fruits, new and old, which I have stored for you, my lover. These foods of delight. And then finally, we have our text, where the similarity is the most striking. We have this night scene in Song of Songs chapter 3, and then in Proverbs chapter 7, verses 6 through 23, we have another night scene where there's another young woman, but this young woman's got something else on her mind. The setting is the same. They're both taking place at night. They're both doing the same thing. They're seeking. And they find. They're in the same location. In the streets and in the open squares. And they both respond to the young man in the same way. They seize him. This is lost in the English translations. I don't know if it was just too aggressive for the English translations, but the verb where it says, I held him, is this same word in Proverbs chapter 7, where the adulterous woman seizes the young man. Do you remember what it says there? Look at what it says in, in the Song of Songs. I seized him. And I would not let him go. This is love. This is love. The difference between these two women is their destination. 
In Proverbs chapter 7, verse 27, her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Whereas in the Song of Songs, the woman doesn't take him to hell, but to the place of life, the place of conception. We see here in verse 4, I held him, I would not let him go. This word for held is to seize. I would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house. Why the mother? Why are we bringing that up? Do you see the chamber, just like in Proverbs, but instead of the chamber of death? It's not the chamber of life, it's the chamber of conception. Because this woman is not seeking to take and to seize and to destroy, she's bringing him and seizing him into the chamber of life. Because who is she? She is his life. She is his source of life. Do you see the contrast between these two women? This is love. What is the significance here? It's massive. It's huge. And it's a message that we are not teaching our single girls. They have this Disney perception of love. This kind of shatters that. Because I want you to think with me for a little bit. Where is the young man in Song of Songs, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4? Where is he? He is in a very dangerous and a very vulnerable position. And how many husbands are in dangerous, vulnerable positions. And what they need sometimes is a husband to come alongside, or as a wife, to come alongside of him and to grab him and not let go. Because there's another woman that's doing and trying to do that same thing. This is love. As I've worked through this material with uh, singles and mixed audiences, men and women, well, boys and girls, they're not married yet, but they've gotten responses like, I don't want to get married. (laughs) Marriage is a good thing. And in Song 3-6, we get a wedding And we see the Garden of Eden come back into bloom. Marriage is a good thing, but this is true love. The seeking, the finding, the grasping, the kissing, the locale of the search, the night setting, and the sexual end are all elements of common theme of amatory desire and quest appearing in canticles, that's the official, the the fancy name for Song of Songs, okay? And echoed in Proverbs. Both women appeal to the man, lie with me. The one possesses a a well of living waters, the other, the chambers of death. And what does the Song of Songs teach us? It teaches that even when we don't desire, we can awaken desire. 
And as the Song of Songs wife awakens desire, gets herself out of bed, goes and puts herself through the inconvenience, through the danger, through the obstacles, like the watchman, and she goes after her lover, and she seizes him, and she drags him back to the house of conception. We see the real definition, the biblical definition, that this is truly love. This is love. And what's going to make you do that? Love. Love made me do it. Biblical. Take up your cross and follow me kind of love. And this is what we see in the Song of Songs is this tension because guess what I just described for you? A jackal and kind of a big one. And you might be saying, honey, we've got a jackal and it's a big one and we need to seize it. This needs to get fixed. And then sometimes you just need to seize him. And that's what we see in the Song of Songs. Right here, that seizing word, it's right here. I seized him and would not let him go. It's the same word. Seize the foxes. And this is the wisdom of love. This is the challenge of love. What kind of a situation do we have? Is it time to seize a fox or is it time just to seize him? And that's the final point. Love seizes. Seize the foxes or seize him. So what do I do? Love's got to make you do it. What kind of a love is this? A deep-seated, servant-hearted, self-sacrificing, take-up-your-cross-and-follow-me kind of love for the one whom your soul loves. There is a reason you have that name in this passage. She says it four times. The one whom my soul loves. Because only a soulish kind of a love does this. And I do want to be a little, I do want to say that there's a lot of ambiguity in both of these situations. The little foxes are very ambiguous because it could be a lot of different things. Similarly, the night scene is ambiguous. It could be a lot of different things. It may just be that he's been really busy and he needs you to just go and to grab him and to seize him. It's not necessarily some kind of pornography struggle or whatever struggle it might be. What I want us to see here in this passage is this tension that's created by the Song of Songs and that you need to not look at your spouse. You need to look at you. And you need to say, you know what? I don't care what this valley is that God's going to have me walk through, but God has told me I need to love. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to love. And maybe there's some foxes that we need to resolve, and guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go after those foxes, and I'm going to seize them. And maybe she's never going to reciprocate. Maybe it's just going to always be me loving her and serving her and loving her and serving her again and again and again. And maybe, maybe there's just going to be some sexual dysfunction within our marriage for the rest of our lives. That might be just the valley that you need to walk through. 
But if that's the valley that you need to walk through, I pray that as you stand before Almighty God, you will stand before Him and you will be able to say, I will not be ashamed. I'm not going to go and look for answers from this world. I am going to live in purity and holiness before my God. That is my responsibility and I will fulfill my marriage oaths by the power of God. And as God, as, as, as God the Father was the one that helps the Messiah as he goes to the cross, God the Father, now God the Son, as your example, empowers you to do what this world calls absolutely absurd. And you stick to it. And you go. And you walk one foot at a time. And you love. And you love. And you love. Love makes you do it. And coming on the eve of the sermon from last night, a beautiful application to think through. Everyone says, <laughs> when he read this last night, I was just like, "Woo!" Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely word until they have something to forgive. Apply that to your marriage. Apply that to your marriage bed. An unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. Matthew 18, 32 through 33. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant as I had pity on you? Will you forgive? Will you forgive your husband? Will you forgive your wife, love. This is love. And now the final exhortation. I know, I'm going long. The final exhortation to the singles. This is love. And when you're wondering through, oh man, this person's a good person. Should I marry this person or not? I don't know, I just don't feel it. What in the world are they feeling in this passage? Are you following me? Biblical love isn't chemistry. Biblical love creates chemistry. You awaken love. You choose to love. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, don't stir up or awaken love. Don't awaken love. I almost want to say you don't have a clue what you're playing with. Okay? And whatever you feel for that other individual, it's not love. This is real love. Lord, thank you for this time that we are able to get into your word. And I pray for the marriages here. I know that there are struggles in this area. And I pray for humility for our men, our husbands, and our wives. I pray for our men. Help us to live in holiness before you and to truly enjoy intimacy the way that you designed it with our wives and our wives alone. Help us to be holy and blameless before you before uh, at your coming, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for our wives. Help, uh, help them to love us. Give them a biblical strength to love us, even in our fallenness, even when we mess up. Lord, as we live 
and forgive and live and forgive. I pray that we would uh, champion a biblical view of love that this world can't even possibly comprehend. They can't even come close. This is crazy stuff. But this is true, and this is love. I pray for our singles. Give them victory when it comes to purity. Help them to take the steps necessary to have that purity. And Lord, as we have a time for Scripture in action, this free time, I pray for these couples. I pray that you would work in hearts and there might be some conversations that they need to have. It might be that a husband might want to say, you're not like that Song of Songs lover, but don't point the finger instead. What have I done to hurt you? Give us healing, Lord. Help us to love as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.